All right, we are still in John chapter 17, taking a slow motion look at the words that Jesus prayed to his father. And today I want to just prepare you for a little bit of, of what may be for some a little bit of shock value. You, you may not realize the Bible says what we're going to spend time looking at. And, and part of the reason I'm going to have us be reading a lot of passages today, and we, won't, we won't unpack all these passages, but I, I do know as a preacher that uh, audience reading versus audience listening to some cool illustration or a story are two di- very different dynamics. So I'm going to have to ask you to put your A game on. And when we read, sit up a little bit and pay attention. This is God's word, mostly. Got some quotes in here I want us to look at as well. But we're going to be reading God's word. But it it may be presenting a concept to you that you've read past too fast. And and if you have, can I I introduce from the get-go the thought that then you have read too quickly to truly understand the love of God. That's a big priority for most of us, right? Most everybody in the room wants to know the love of God, maybe more than we want to know anything else. And that's not fair to God, by the way, but, but I think he gets it. There's something about our own lives that if there's anything we're in touch with that we need, we, we know we need this thing called love and we're building our lives, trying to construct it relationally, where we live, who we're around, all those things are trying to tap into this sense of, I, I want to experience love. As a creature made by the creator, you, more than anything, you want to experience the love of God. That's more than anything else. And that doesn't mean these other aspects of love aren't important. But you want to experience the love of God. But if you don't see what we're talking about today, I can guarantee you, you are not correctly understanding the love of God. All right? So let's look in John chapter 17. Let's read verse 9 and 10. Just remember, we're, we're just overhearing Jesus praying, right? This is Jesus mic'd up. He's praying to the Father, and you and I get to listen in on it. Jesus says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Let me read this again, and I want to emphasize some words so that you can let them stick out. Because the way I just read it may often be the way we read the Bible. But let me emphasize some words here. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you've given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. Yours are mine. I am glorified in them. Now, if you read and listen to that carefully, you can celebrate and you can be rather uncomfortable. Because it is both, is it not? There is emphasis in this passage. A lot of emphasis in this passage. As a matter of fact, I want to introduce a very simple word for you. Those. The word those. is You're going to find the word those all over the place. And in this those, mine, yours, 
not, that word not, is that word not the biggest word in this paragraph? Does it catch your attention? Do, do you realize this is Jesus on record with his father using the word not? I am not praying for those. I am praying for these. And that emphasis didn't need to be there. He didn't need to say them, those, not that many times to his father. His father knows this stuff. But this is holy scripture for you and I to interact with. And the son of God, the most sacrificial human being who ever walked on the face of the earth. He is the one using this emphatic language. So it catches our attention uniquely. So I want to draw out the thought that Jesus was very aware of something that we need to also be very aware of. In this passage and throughout the scriptures, there are two distinct groups. Do you notice them? Do you notice them whenever you read the Bible? Do you look for them? Do you notice that they're not treated the same way? That there's going to be a different outcome in their lives? That God has an affection for them that's different? That's kind of awkward to hear. Because our culture has taught us something very, very different. And it has taught us this subtly for many, many years in many, many ways. So this is hard for us to hear. That's why we're going to spend so much time running back through the Bible to see it. I think I asked this question in your outline if you have one. How does my group status inform my self-understanding and my God understanding? Do you know what I mean by group status? You're in a group. Do you know you're in a group? And do you know which group you're in? When the Bible speaks about humanity, it's going to speak about two groups. So everybody is in one group or the other. And that has a huge bearing on how you see yourself, on how you see God, on how you see God's involvement in the daily spaces of your life. If you think he is or if you think he's inclined to be or not inclined to be and what are the reasons what he would be. Or do you see that he's just treating you like he's treating everybody else? Because everybody knows that God submits to the EEOC laws as well. You know what those are? Equal opportunity employer. God's going to get our attention here by saying some things that, that might feel a little awkward. But remember, God is in the right place. When things feel awkward, don't accuse God of saying the wrong thing. Be humble enough to recognize my ears have a hard time hearing the right thing. Not God's weird. The question needs to be, where am I that this sounds so distant and unusual? All right, so let's, let's look at some group status here. I'll race through these pretty quickly. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6, beginning in the Bible. Noah's status versus the rest of the world. Right? We all know Noah. He's famous for the flood moment. But this is his story here. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All right, so let God's view of humanity be the accurate view. Let's not call into question what God sees. He sees wickedness and corruption 
in the hearts of men. Verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All right, we so also know Noah and his family. So you, in this moment, you have two groups of people here. You have humanity as a massive group whom God sees as entangled in wickedness and whose intentions in their heart are evil. Be careful you don't overread that. Evil in a variety of ways. Evil in selfish ways. Evil in nice ways. Because if, if you're thinking everybody was what? Butchering everybody 24-7? I don't think so. Well, that's not what the verse said. It's the intentions of the heart are evil because they're not oriented correctly toward God. That's what evil is. So God sees the human heart, but then he has another group that he sets apart. They're going to have a different life outcome. The outcome of one is going to be judgment. The outcome of this other group, Noah and his family, is going to be spared of judgment. There is a favor being placed upon Noah's life and his family that is not being placed upon the other group. We fast forward from Noah to next big player in scripture, Abraham. Now we've read stories about Abraham. What about Abraham's status versus the rest of the world? Was God dealing with Abraham just like he was dealing with everybody else on planet earth? No. Right? So we could find this in Genesis. I'm going to pull it from Paul's understanding of, of Abraham in Romans 4, verse 13. Paul says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring was the promise that God made to everybody. No, it was not. It was to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. So Paul's trying to teach something about how it is that we get right and stay right with God. And he stands up this understanding of receiving something by faith versus performing something and, and gaining acceptance with God. Verse, 13, verse 15, he says, For the law brings wrath. Wrath is the biblical term for punishment and judgment of sin. And the law brings it. But where there is no law, there's no transgression. So the moment you stand up a standard, you can now fall short of it. So the law in this sense is always going to be carefully referring to what God says is right. But quite honestly, if any of us were to stand up a standard, it won't be long until we'll fall short of our own standard. I've never met anybody who can stand up a standard and, and fulfill it every day of their life all the time. And then if you can fulfill it on the outside, the question is, are you fulfilling it in your heart? So God comes along and says, hey, there is this standard. There is a right. And if you're going to try and live by that right, you are going to become aware that you fall short and that you sin. And the response to that is wrath. 
That is why, verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed. Two good G words. Where there is grace, there's a guarantee. To all Abraham's offspring. Stop. To everyone? Is this to everyone on the, on the planet? There is a promise of grace that is guaranteed. Is this verse describing something that everybody gets because they're descendants of Adam? Because they're human beings, for goodness sake. They're, they're creatures that God made. Now, God clearly pulls Abraham out of the big group and says, I'm making promises to you and your descendants. And they are made by grace and they are guaranteed. And Abraham, the only thing you can do is believe what I'm saying. Okay, I believe it. And it is accounted to him as righteousness. Nothing he does, he doesn't outperform anybody. He's not better than anybody else. He is simply the object of God's guaranteed grace. That's what makes Abraham special. God intended for that man to receive something special from him. That's it. And if you know anything about Abraham's resume, he doesn't deserve it any more than anybody else does. So you have a man who's getting something that he doesn't deserve while, this is the uncomfortable part, everybody else is not getting that. And the promises are to him and to his descendants, and we find in the New Testament that has to do with faith. right? And it goes on and says this, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, right? So the real descendants of Abraham are the ones who receive from God by faith. Those are the descendants of Abraham, who is the father of us all. All as in all of who? When you read the Bible, you have to be careful about how you use these words. All of humanity? Is Abraham the father of all of humanity? No, he's the father of all who have faith in what God has said. That's who he's the father of. And all of us who have faith in what God has said are a group separate from another group. Right, so this is just scripture. How about the nation of Israel? Fast forward from Abraham. God selects a nation uniquely. He's very clear about this. This nation is going to be treated differently than all the other nations. Listen, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you, Israel, you are a people Holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Two groups. I have chosen you, and then there's all the peoples on the face of the earth. So out of all the peoples, it's like, you know, just little people groups. Here, 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 dots and dots and dots. They're everywhere. And God reaches into all these dots, and he takes this one and he pulls this little canister out of all the other canisters in the world. And he says, you are a special treasure to me out of all the peoples in the earth. Verse seven, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, right? So you get this picture? Sea of humanity and all their little groups and God reaches in and grabs this one and starts having a conversation with them out of all the other ones. Let me just make this clear. It's not because there's something really, really cool and special about you. This is what the conversation is here, right? But it's because the Lord set his love on you and he chose you. For you 
actually were the fewest of all the peoples. You were like the least likely to be chosen. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And God will go on again in, in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and spell out this specialness. But you got to hear this because it's clearly all over the Bible. But we read past this too fast, right? Deuteronomy 10 verse 14. If you've ever read Deuteronomy, you've read this multiple times. Behold, to the Lord your God belong the heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. All right, so everything belongs to the Lord. Every people group, everywhere, every individual, ever drawn breath, everything belongs to the Lord. Yet, the Lord has set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Do you hear a group separated from another group in this passage? D.A. Carson has written a very interesting book a number of years ago called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. It's an interesting title because if there's anything that we tend to think is pretty simple, it's love, isn't it? Especially the love of God. And a guy comes along and writes a book, says, no, that's a difficult doctrine. Uh, it won't take you long. It's not a big book. But if you read it, you'll immediately go, wow, that is a difficult doctrine. He says, the striking thing about these passages is that when Israel is contrasted with the universe or with other nations, the distinguishing feature has nothing of personal or national merit. It is nothing other than the love of God. In the very nature of the case, then, God's love is directed toward Israel in these passages in a way in which it is not, there's that not word, directed toward other nations. All right, if you see that all over the Bible and you get to this moment where Jesus is behind the scenes praying to his father and he says, I am not praying for those. You hear it. Because in your mind, you clearly understand there's two groups of people. And Jesus is praying for one group. He identifies his disciples as not of this world. There's the world, and they are of this world. But then there is this little group who's not of this world. I am praying for them. I am treating them differently than everybody else is going to be treated. Paul does this as well. If you read through Paul's description of groups of human beings, you'll come across language that sounds like this in multiple places. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, Paul says, for as in Adam, right? That's a container, if you will. As in Adam, all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. So you have two different groups here. You have a group of humanity who is considered in Adam, and you have another group who's considered in Christ. You have two different outcomes awaiting them in life. You have death on one and you have life in the other. Paul would say it this way in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those, there's that those word, for those 
who are in Christ Jesus. So then you have this in Adam group and you have this in Christ group. Paul brings another thought. For these guys in this group, there's no condemnation for them. All right, now, there's an implication in what I just said, isn't there? What does that imply about this group? They are condemned. What makes this group distinct is pointing out to them there's something unique that awaits them. There is no condemnation for them. But for the other group, there is. When you see this in the Bible, you stop using characteristics about God in a sloppy, unbiblical way. Because we pick up love and we create our own understanding of what love really is. We don't have a difficult doctrine of love. We have a very easy doctrine of love. And then we have a simple almost reflection of ourselves view of God. And so we install those two things together and we have God just treating everybody the same way because that's the God that we would invent. But the God of the Bible is not treating everybody the same way. And as awkward as that sounds, it simply is what the Bible says. Second Corinthians 5, Paul would commonly use this language, verse 17. Therefore, if, important word, if anyone is in Christ in this group, He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Something has happened to everybody who's in this group. There's something new in them. And the old has passed away. All right, well, by implication, if, if, if anyone is in Christ, and if they are not in Christ, there's only one other place they could be. They are in Adam, which is the land of the old. It is the land of what was inherited from our forefather, Adam, and it's been passed on from generation to generation to generation until it found its way to me. And I am in Adam until I get a transfer to being in Christ. And once I'm in Christ, now there's no condemnation. And I'm a new creation. There's a new source of life in me. I am rewired in some kind of way that God makes me a different person than I once was. But... If that doesn't happen, I am still an Adam, and therefore I am not a new creation, and I am under condemnation. Do you understand? These two groups are important to recognize. You almost miss the whole point of the Bible if you don't catch this. So for Jesus to stop and pray, I am praying for this group. I am not praying for them. It's like he wanted to get your attention in saying that because you and I have got to be aware of what group am I in? And if I'm in Christ, in that group, then the way God relates to me changes. And I need to know that every day of my life. Next little section there, God's dealings with each group are different. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, is, is describing a real event. This is not a fairy tale. This is not some uh, colorful story for imagery's sake that somehow probably will never really happen like this, but it's teaching us some kind of a moral lesson. This is an event that is on your calendar. It's just so far perhaps into the future that you haven't turned enough pages to see it. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne before him, will be gathered all the nations. 
you will not miss this appointment. Have you ever missed an appointment? Jesus, because you and I have a choice about things that we do. In this moment, everybody gets summoned to this meeting in a way that no one misses it. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will do something. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place, group number one, the sheep on his right. But the goats, group number two, on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come. Right? They're going to get invited. The word that comes out of him is going to be a welcoming, warm, come. You who are blessed by my father, I have been praying for you. I prayed for you in John chapter 17. My father gave you to me. Come to me. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then in verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart. It will not feel warm. It will not feel inviting. It will send a shudder down the spine of those that God has created to face the reality of the God of the universe has finally and forever sent them away from his presence. That will be what that moment feels like. You understand, this moment will feel so different than that moment. He will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is is not a story that just teaches some kind of weird moral. It is a description of an actual event. Oh, I don't want to chase this rabbit, or do I? You want to know why this is so hard to hear? Because I'm going to pull on the idea of this is not fair in just a moment. But do you understand, not every human being in all time settings, on all continents throughout history, used the word fair the way we do. You want to find the word fair and it getting its birthplace to where it's become popular like it is today? You almost got to go back maybe to the French Revolution, to the moment when humanity decided, you know what? You know what? Enough of this other people imposing their will on us. There's this thing called democracy. And, and you know what? The, the, the down and out peasant guy, he's got every bit as much right to say so as anybody else does. And so we're going to invent this thing called democracy. And you and I are heroes and champions of democracy. And I am too. But it has this little side effect in it. Is it stands up individual views and opinions and votes in a way that causes us to raise the issue of fair. Because now it has to answer to this thing we just created. And and history has borne witness. The most shaping influence since the 1700s has been this democratic principle. It is shaping history. It is helping the idea of you can't do that to that one unless you're going to do it to that one. Can I just shock everybody? God is not democratic. 
He does not subscribe to such an idea. He is the dictator of the universe. He is the creator. He is the king. Now, I don't want to extract that from his character. He is full of love, but if you'll pay attention, the love of God is a difficult doctrine. You have to pay attention to what he's doing here. And all throughout scripture, there is a testimony that there are distinct groups that are, they have a different destiny ahead of them. And God comments on it over and over and over again. There's a different eternity that awaits these two groups. There is a different earthly experience awaiting these two groups. The Bible talks about promises. It mentions covenant terms. There's the word grace and favor that is in scripture. There's whatever was going to characterize Abraham and his descendants. They were going to get a special deal. God didn't tell Egypt, hey, whoever curses you, I'm going to curse. God didn't plan to come rally behind some other nation. God told Abraham and his descendants, that's what I'll do for you. If somebody comes along and curses you, I will curse them. This is God promising something specific to a particular group of people. Romans chapter 8 theologically unpacks something that is critical, but it is related to everything we've just said. You can't separate it from everything we've just said. Romans chapter 8 verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I read that fast on purpose. Because we've got that verse memorized. And we might pull it out of our back pocket for anybody who's going through a hard time. Anybody. Hey, look, man, I know you don't get this. This is really hard. I know it. Tragic, difficult situation. But listen, man, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What if you don't love him and you're not called according to his purpose? Does that verse still work? But we want to make it work for everybody. Because we've created a God who doesn't make distinguishing marks between humanity. So if God does that for one person, he has to do it for everybody. So somehow that verse must apply to everybody. It does not. That's shocking, isn't it? But you know what a misrepresentation of this God would be? If I stood up here this morning and I said, hey, I know we just listened in on Jesus. And he said, I am praying for these. I am not praying for those. But listen, don't pay attention to that. Let's just like the rest of the prayer, okay? He emphatically said that. He didn't have to. He didn't have to install the not word. He could have just said, I am praying. You know, here's this group. I am praying for these, Father. Do this, do that. Here's their need, blah, blah, blah. No, he had to install that little not word. Not praying for those outside of these. Now listen, let me make clear. That doesn't mean that there's never been a heart, affection, care, desire, plan, purpose of God for the others. The, God, the creator of the universe has plans in all those categories. And Jesus is answering the Father's intentions in this category. But we have a phrase here. We know that for those, for those, there's that those word again, who love God, all things work together. For those, those, a particular group, those who are called According to his first, what does that mean to be called? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those, 
There's a group that this group exists in a choice made way back in time before the foundations of the world. God made a decision about this group. So that little illustration of reaching in the nations and pulling them out, that didn't happen like on a calendar that you and I can find. Back in the foundations of the world, God intended that there would be a unique group that he would treat differently. Listen to what he says about that group, verse 30. Those whom he, right, previously planned, predestined, he called. And those who he called, how many of those whom he called? Well, all of them. Not all of the other group, but all of those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this group has this promise, this guarantee that God is working in everything for you. At every moment of your life, he causes everything to work together according to his purpose and his plan for your good. And, and he who has called you, hey, group, pay attention to this. He who called you, he justified you. He sent his son to live a life you could never live, to fulfill the requirements that you could never fulfill, to make you right with him forever. And those who he justified, what did he do with them? He glorified them. He took them into a state of glorification with him forever. That group, nobody's lost. Nobody falls out of the group. But they are not everybody. They are a distinct group. John 17, 9, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. John chapter 17 is Jesus praying for the people being described by Paul in Romans chapter 8. He is uniquely praying for them. And all this gets done by the grace of God. How can you tell if we're talking about grace, if we're really talking about grace? Two things tend to run on the heels of grace biblically presented in a genuine conversation. One, that's not fair. So before anything, right, wrong, this guy's a jerk, that nation should be blown up. Before any of that, way back in some time zone that we don't even understand, God chose. That's not fair. The second thing is if everybody that God called, he justified everybody and he glorifies. So once you're chosen, you kind of don't look like you can get out of this deal. So that raises the next question. So then Mr. License now shows up. So I guess it doesn't really matter how you live then, right, Keith? Is that what you're saying? It doesn't really matter how you live. I mean, if God chose, and this is Mr. License introducing a thought. And by the way, if you've never had Mr. License show up when you have presented grace, can I just warn you? You probably haven't presented grace correctly. If you present grace biblically, these two guys should show up in somebody's conversation. That's not fair. And wait, so does it matter what we do then? Can we just do anything? Now, there's an answer to that. But if you never generate that question, 
you're probably not clear enough on what grace really is. Right? Different, a couple other differences here. Different need for each group. These two groups don't have the same need. The world needs to believe. That's the need of the world. John 17, a little bit later in the prayer, verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, praying for these, but not just these only, but also for those who will believe. There are, there are still people in that other group who will believe and will become into this group. They, they will get a group transfer. Now, why will they get a group transfer? Just because they believe? No. But because they're called. And they believe. So in this little group over here, there's not a one who's not called. Not a one. And in this group over here, there's not a one who didn't believe. But neither one of those things by themselves puts you in this group. They're going to need to believe. The people in that group, they're going to need to believe. Oh, they're called by God, but they're going to need to believe. So you don't get just to get, hey, well, well, whatever God did, he did. And, you know, he's, you know, God calls, and so I don't need to worry about responding. No, no, no. The Bible says, I'm praying for those who will believe. They're going to actually believe. God has called them, but they're going to actually believe in me through their word. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us. So that the world may believe. The world is in need of believing. That other group is in need of believing. Galatians chapter 3, going back all the way to Abraham, Paul again, verse 7 says, Know then that it's those of faith, right? People who believe, who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Be blessed how, Abraham? By receiving from God by faith. By receiving what God has done to make you right with him. By receiving his justification simply by faith. Believing. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. But those who are not, are not blessed. Everybody is not in the same group. So the world needs to believe. The disciple needs to manifest the life and purpose of God to the fallen world. That's in Jesus' prayer as well. Those who believe in me through their word. Right? So there is a need for one group to believe what the other group is saying to them. And that's the gospel that was preached to Abraham way long ago. That gospel needs to be believed. Righteousness, rightness with God can only come by faith. Not just faith in anything. In this is life, Jesus has already said in his prayer. That they know you, the one true God. So you can't believe in a false God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And you can't believe in God without Jesus and qualify to be called a person of faith. Okay, I wrote in your outline, Galatians 3.8, Abraham is described as a revealer of the gospel to the world. The good news that one could find this favored status by faith. That's all. 
Just believe what God has said and done. That's it. And you find favored status. And this helps us, right? This is informative for you and I as we live our lives in our life mission. I wrote in your outline, we understand that our mission is not moral reform, but imaging God and proclaiming the gospel. Now, last time I checked, though, uh, when somebody actually believes the gospel, God begins to reform their morals. So I've never met anybody, right, because you're a new creation. If anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. There's new work going on. God's going to begin to alter and shape and change who you are. But it doesn't make any sense to try and convince people to perform the secondary task before the first one has been accomplished. So the mission you and I have, and let me, let me put some teeth on it. The lead issue, if you and I are living life, the lead issue for America, for your grandchildren, for your relative who believes in abortion, for your coworker who votes liberal every time they vote, the lead issue for them is to believe the gospel. Do not make the lead issue for these people something else. Does that mean you can't have a conversation about whether you think abortion is right or wrong? That, certainly you can. But if you won them to a moral view, they still don't believe. The need is for them to believe, not just believe in their moral boundaries, not just believe in the concept that, a, that there's a God who has a good and evil peace associate. No, no. They must know him, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. They must know that or they're not saved. So if we can get everybody to vote the way we want them all to vote. Okay, maybe that's going to change some laws in our land, but it's not putting anybody in heaven. They are as lost as they ever have been. Because Abraham and the nation of Israel and everybody who has found favor from God is not because they finally got their lives together in a way that God likes them. They are chosen. If you, and if, I wish I had more time because if you unpack chosen, they are chosen before they did anything good or evil. You neither qualify nor disqualify from being chosen. God just chooses. That's how it works. You and I are the object of different prayer, different covering, different protection, different affection. In our lives. Charles Spurgeon says, the point to which I want to call attention is this. The reason why Christ prays, not for the world, but for his people, he puts it, for they are thine. As if they were all the dearer to him because they were the fathers. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. He loves us all the better and he prays for us all the more fervently because we are the fathers. Such is the love to his father that our being the fathers, listen, sheds upon us an extra halo of beauty. Because we belong to the father, therefore does the savior plead for us with all the greater earnestness at the throne of heavenly grace. I love the fact that Mr. Spurgeon picked up a halo because I have a reference point for halos and it is a bad reference point. Right, when I 
I grew up, I hope I don't offend anybody, I grew up in New Orleans, I grew up Catholic, I saw a lot of halos. And whenever I'd see a picture, an old painting with somebody with a halo on, you know what I thought about that person? I thought, you know, because I was a hoodlum growing up, they were, they were goody two-shoes, first of all, but they were just morally superior to everybody else in the room because there were some people in the picture who didn't have a halo. And so my impression was, wow, that person's outliving everybody else in the room. They're the only one with a halo on. I cannot reinstall halos. What if you get a halo when God chooses you? You don't get it for what you do. You get it because he has set you in this group. Everybody in this group wears a halo. That's how you get your halo. No matter what you've done, no matter what your background is, the fact that God chose you and lavished his grace upon you, that's where your halo comes from, not from being morally superior to others. Charles Spurgeon says, notice in my text how the Lord seems to have the seal in his hand and he stamps it all over his peculiar possession. They are thine. All are mine, thine, thine, mine. It's, it is all possessive pronouns to show that God looks upon his people, his portion, his possession, his property. Every man has something or other which he values above the rest of his estate. And here the Lord, by so often reiterating the words which signify possession, proves that he values his people above everything. You know how important that is when you wake up on Monday morning? That you are in a special status in the heart of God. And if you are too influenced by the French Revolution, you won't let God treat you that way. Because, you see, there's something that you think he can't love you more or differently than he loves everybody else. And you are undoing the truth of God. That's why I say, if you don't get this, you can't truly get the love of God. You have to have a category that gives the God of the universe permission to treat you differently than he treats everybody else. Otherwise, you will lower God's love to the least common denominator. What does everybody share from God? Well, that's how God's treating me. Can I just tell you, that is not how God is treating you. You have been designed to live a life that cheats it cheats the system. Abraham, I'm going to treat you different than everybody else. I'm going to install some things in your life that everybody else doesn't get. I'm going to give you some cheat codes, Abraham. So when you go to do your life, you're going to have an advantage that others don't have. That's what he said to Abraham. That's what he says to you and me. That's pretty important stuff. You know, sometimes we, we, we have this view. I'll read this passage just a second from... Galatians chapter six, we, we have this view and it's, it, it's an evangelistically fervent view. And from that standpoint, I, I, I love the fervor. I, I don't love the inaccuracy when it comes to the scriptures, but I love the fervor. It's almost as though all you Christians, you need to get off your butts and stop loving each other and get out there and love the world. 
All right, so there's a little bit of something that gets installed in that that kind of awakens us. Hey, can I just awaken you to the urgency? Because that Matthew passage is on a, on a calendar and it's coming. And everybody will stand before God in judgment one day. So, you know, it would be appropriate for the priority in a church to be how do we influence the world. But you know what that does when it gets bad? Is it, is it starts to treat you like you're loving each other. Like, get outside your own walls and, you know, quit being so worried about each other. And, hey, there's people who are lost and dying. Uh, there is a unique love of God and purpose for the people in this room that he does not have for them. And you hear it in verses like this in Galatians 6. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And I think that word there means everyone. And especially, particularly, This word can be translated most of all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. I am praying for them. This might change the way the church loves each other, which might then create a unity among one another that would then be translated to those in the world that they may believe that thou did send me. That's how he links these things together. There is a unique, special love of God for his own. And I think he expects us to have that for his own as well. One more long thought from Mr. Spurgeon here. I hope you take this to heart personally. He says, I want you to notice these different points, not because I can fully explain them all to you, But if I can only give you some of these great truths to think about and to help you to communion with Christ tonight, I shall have done well. These notes of of possession, they occur in the private intercourse between the Father and the Son. It is in our Lord's prayer when he is in the inner sanctuary speaking with the Father that we have these words. All mine are thine. Thine are mine. It is not to you and to me that he is talking now. The Son of God is speaking with the Father when they are in very near communion one with another. Now, what does this say to me but that the Father and the Son greatly value believers? What people talk about when they are alone, not what they say in the market, not what they talk of in the midst of the confessed mob, confused mob, but what they say when they are in private. That lays bare their heart. Here is the son speaking to the father, not about thrones and royalties, nor cherubim and seraphim, but about poor men and women. In those days, mostly fishermen and peasant folk who believed on him. They are talking about these people. And the son is taking his own solace with the father in their secret privacy by talking about these precious jewels, these dear ones that are their peculiar treasure. You have not any notion how much God loves you. And I will say it again. If you cannot see God loving you differently than the way the world is loved by God, you don't get what this is trying to say. You have not any notion how much God loves you 
dear brother, dear sister, you have never yet had an idea or the tithe of an idea of how precious you are to Christ. You think because you are so imperfect and you fall so much below your own ideal that therefore he does not love you much. You think he cannot do so. Have you ever measured the depth of Christ's agony in Gethsemane and of his death on Calvary? If you have tried to do so, you will be quite sure that apart from anything in you or about you, he loves you with a love that passeth knowledge. I wrote in your outline, it is a strange theological and thinking impact to live your life as a Christian, but to not own the differentiation that God has revealed about your life. D.A. Carson says in his book, nowadays, if you tell people that God loves them, they're unlikely to be surprised. Of course, God loves me. He's like that, isn't he? Besides, why shouldn't he love me? I'm kind of cute, or at least as nice as the next person. I'm okay, you're okay. God loves you and me. And that is what too many people think the love of God is like, which reduces it so drastically. Last thing, let me just say this. There's, a, there's an inclination of God toward us and an inclination of us toward God that is different from one group to the other. The prophet Zephaniah in chapter 3, verse 17, in the Old Testament, he said, the Lord your God is in your midst. Your midst. Not everybody's midst. Your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Do you have a category for that? Or is God just mad at everybody? God's just bothered by everybody. Everybody's so sinful and wayward. This is, you know, when you just blend all of us in with the world, you get one expression of God. But here you've got God who took a group out and set them aside and he sings over them. Sings. Can you imagine God singing over them and he exalts over them? So he dances around his own with great delight and joy. John Piper says, when I hear this singing, I stand dumbfounded, staggered, speechless, that he singing over me? One who has dishonored him so many times in so many ways? It's almost too good to be true. All right, now listen to this inclination here. This, this, is, answer, this is your answer to Mr. License. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 38. And they shall be my people. Right? Group separate from another group. And I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. For their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, a covenant that does not end, that I will not turn away from doing good to them. 
So I guess it doesn't matter how you live, right? Because he just promised you, I will not turn away from doing good to them. See, if you don't read these verses, Mr. License will never show up. He doesn't like the sound of that. So he taps into and says, so I guess that means you can do whatever the heck you want. Oh, did you read the rest of it? I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. So you got some explaining to do. But the explaining is not about whether you can outdo God's grace. That's the wrong question. Your question needs to be, how is it that your heart will not be inclined toward him as a new creation? Can you explain that to me? Because he said he would do that to these people. He would make them new creations and that stubborn heart that was rebellious and wanted nothing to do with God was suddenly going to find itself inclined toward God and fearing him and having a desire for him. It is the safest thing that I could say to you with that being true of a Christian to tell you, hey, when you leave here, do whatever you want. Welcome to Lakeview Christian Center. The banner over the door says, do whatever you want. But it doesn't say it without first visiting. God has made you a new creation. God has done something in your heart. He made a promise to you. He'd never turn from you. And I will give them one heart. I'm going to take away their stony heart. I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. I'm going to shape it. I will put the fear of them in their hearts. They're going to get a heart. They're going to get a version of something on the inside that wants to do things. So that from now on, they can do whatever they want. The problem is the distance that too many of us live from that heart. Because there is something in us that wants to do righteousness and glorify God with everything in us. I will do, this is God saying this, Jeremiah the prophet. Let me finish with this. Keith, you can come back up. This is Jeremiah. I will do for this group what I will not do for that group. Is that, is that in that passage? Am I, am I misstating that? I will give them a heart inclined toward me. I will make with them a covenant that I will never turn away from doing good to them. But not to them. And Mr. Fair shows up and says, that is not fair. And God says this stuff and he feels no obligation to explain to any of us why it is or is not fair. I've never done a Google search or a a concordance search for the word fair in the Bible, but you know what you find in the Bible? You find words like grace and mercy a lot. You find the word fair like never. So when God goes to, this is huge. When God goes to explain himself, God, why are you doing that? Because of grace and mercy. Well, wait, wait, wait. God, we don't really love grace and mercy all that much. We love fair. So so can you answer to fair real quick? Because that's not fair. Well, no, no, because it's not about fair. It's about mercy. 
and grace. So where does the idea of fair come from? It's an interesting quote from David Levin, an article, Is God Fair? He says, fairness, as conventionally used, entails two related components, deservedness and equality. That is, in order for an occasion to be considered fair, it must meet two tests, the test of deservedness and the test of equality. Any given situation can be considered fair to the extent that one or both of these two components applies. All right, so if you've read your Bible just a little bit, you would recognize the Bible does not present any deservedness in us. So that word is out of the equation. And once it creeps back in, God now has to answer to fair because we deserve something and you gave it to them and you got to give that to me. This idea of equality, God chooses to do what a perfect, holy, righteous God chooses to do. He does not treat all of us equally. And all of us can celebrate, if I say it correctly, the fact that he doesn't give us what we deserve. But the second he starts giving to anybody what they don't deserve, now he's not being fair. But the Bible turns around and says, I'm sorry, I can't find the fair chapter. And you and I go, what? I could never believe in a God like that. Can I just tell you that there were human beings on the planet before the 1700s who didn't have a problem like you and I have a problem with this concept? Now, I know that got into all kinds of trouble for all kinds of reasons, but democracy is, is a large gathering of depraved idiots who are going to come together and make the same decision. Is that your definition of democracy? Because that's mine. Now, I would rather that than some small group of jerks who are going to make a decision and hurt all the rest of us. But, but don't glorify the fallenness of man by acting as though, hey, everybody, everybody deserves. No, the Bible doesn't present that. The Bible presents a dilemma. There is a God who is so loving and so gracious and so compassionate and so merciful. And he stares out on humanity and no one sticks out. There's nobody that God stares at and says, oh man, I thought this was going to be a bad day, but there's a, that's like two or three out there that deserve. Do you understand every day that God looks out on the children of, Ab- of Adam, they don't deserve. So when God turns around, and I think he says it with an attitude, and he sees nobody to bless because no one deserves it, his remedy is not fairness, it's mercy. And he says, and I think he says it with a bit of an attitude, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Your undeservedness, the work of sin, the story of destruction and depravity, selfishness in your lives, I will have mercy. I will pick Noah and I will have mercy on him. And I will pick Abraham and I will have mercy on him. And I will pick this nation, although they're going to be the biggest knuckleheads going. And I will have mercy on them. And he goes down the line until he gets to you and me And he says, I will pick you and I will have mercy on you. Otherwise, nobody knows mercy in this world.
but for you and I to get the gospel and to experience the love of God. You got to recognize the Bible's got two groups in it. And one of them is not being treated the same way as the other one. All right, you may not like the idea, but can everybody shake their head at least and say, okay, yeah, I do think I see that. Shake your heads for me. You don't have to like it. Just, yeah, it is there. All right, this is, this is how, by the way, this is how you come to understand huge doctrines like sovereignty and predestination. Just do a good study to find out, are they there in the Bible? You may not like them because we can't always explain them, but at least you got to say, is it there? Are we all in agreement? Is this here? All right, well, it means something to us. Let's stand up together and pray for a moment. Oh, Lord, I pray, guided by your word, you prayed uniquely. And you recognize that there was going to be a unique group under the hand of your mercy and your grace who would be blessed forever, would be spared everything that they do deserve and would inherit everything that they do not deserve. Jesus, you prayed for those. And there were some of them in the room there with you when you prayed. And then there were others that you saw who were going to believe because of their work. They were going to believe. Lord, I pray for those who may be here this morning who are going to believe. They have not yet believed. They are in a group that needs to feel very, very uncomfortable. They are in a place where there is no mercy. Being called upon by a God who is inviting them this morning. Man, they're watching here with us in the building and God is preaching the gospel as he did to Abraham for the whole world to see watch this man get right with God all he does is just receive and believe what I'm saying and what I've done and will do if you're here this morning and you're watching our live stream and you want to be right with God well then do what Abraham did Do what every child of faith has ever done. The gospel, the good news is held out to you by God to be believed. That Jesus Christ can restore you to God. He can forgive your sins. He can give you what you don't deserve. He can bless you with an eternity. He can make you a son and daughter of God. He can write your name down in a book of life. And no one can snatch that life away from him. He will be your Lord and you will be his. He will speak of you like you are his own, mine. You are mine. But you have to receive for those who believe. So if God is reaching into your world and you'll know it because right now your heart is thinking, do I want to do this? If your heart right now is thinking that, give room for your heart to believe God. Turn to him right now. Believe God. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. In this is life. Here, receive life. That they know you, the one true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here, here, have life. 
Not just the word life, what life really means. Knowing God, the one true God. Yahweh, revealed in scripture, the creator. And Jesus Christ, the savior who restores us to God. Believe in him today. Receive him. You don't deserve it. Don't have to argue. None of us do. Just receive it. By grace, God is choosing to be gracious to you today. Just tell him yes right now, wherever you are, watching, you're here. Just tell God, yes, God, yes. Yes, Lord, I, I, I want to receive the life you give because of what Jesus Christ did for me. Lord, there are some here who know you. Lord, they're living in a moment right now where they are having a hard time seeing just how uniquely special, privileged they are in your eyes. Your affection, your desires, your plans. Lord, that doesn't feel close enough to some folks in this room. Lord, I want to pray for just a few that I had an impression for. Lord, I want to pray for those who are here or watching who are single, lonely, disoriented, and drifting. Lord, I pray for every person who feels that way in their life right now. Lord, that your unique, affectionate, singing love would come near to them. They would not possibly feel as though somehow you have forgotten them for you are treating them uniquely they are especially those whom you are concerned about and praying for i just have a sense to pray for some who are here who are watching who are in a marital crisis and and particularly someone who is in a marital crisis and and you're quietly going through that crisis and so others wouldn't know just how bad it is. And you need an awareness of the unique and special, particular and intentional love of God for you. Purpose of God for you, promises that God has for you. you. You must not let this moment drive that from you. God does not love you like he loves everybody else. He particularly loves you. Father, for those who are going through a season that, that just feels the word was, was particular, uniquely empty, right now. Just, I just feel empty. I don't know how else to describe it. I just, I just feel empty. Lord, many of us have been in that place. Lord, it's a desert experience. It lacks a sense of reward and enjoyment. But Lord, there's something about the nearness of God that is our good. Lord, there's something about your heart toward us your intentions toward us that must be freshly awakened. God, I pray for every person watching or present who just feels empty in this season of their lives. Lord, would you invade this space?
with your particular love and purpose and actions toward them. Lord, awaken in them an awareness today that they are not being treated like somebody in some remote part of the world. They uniquely are in Christ with unique purposes and unique plans. God, this is our story. Lord, help me, Lord, help me to wear this well on Monday morning in the next time life is full of questions. Lord, help me remember your unique purpose, your unique love. You are praying uniquely for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. See you guys outside, Fall Fest. Enjoy. Can't wait to visit with some of you. See you guys live stream. There's no such thing as Fall Fest live stream as far as I know. So, sorry you can't enjoy, but we'll see you soon.